This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome to episode 221 of Literary Treks, your official Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, Bruce Gibson, and with me all the way from Canada, because I'm in the United States, (laughs) so that's why all the way over there, that way, up there, that way is Dan Gunther. Dan, how are you? Not too bad. Greetings from America's hat. How's it going? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I guess we're North America's underwear. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I don't know. I'm doing good. (laughs) Uh, Well, if you're a hat, then we're the face. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. Anyway. We're your polite upstairs neighbor. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, so welcome. Yes. You know what? On today's feature, we're going to talk about the wonderful novel Spock's World that came out years and years and years ago. It's an early novel. And uh, Justin Ozer from Trek FM's Earl Grey will be joining us. So I'm really looking forward to diving into that book because I read that a long time ago. Yeah, me too. I'm not that long ago, a couple of years ago for me, but really stuck out in my mind as, as one of the better Star Trek novels. So I'm curious to see what Justin thinks about it. And I'm really looking forward to our discussion about that one. Me too. And then after that, at the end of the show, we have an iTunes review. And so we'll read that and call that person out. And when I say Ooh. call that person out, meaning like, you know, if it's a bad review, th- see, you got to listen to the end of the show, everyone, because if it's a bad review, that's when it's going to get really interesting because we're going to call that person out. But <laughs> if it's a great review, we'll also call that person out. <laughs> hmm. so, I'm, anyway. I'm curious. I, I hope it's a good review. That's, that's ah, scary. That's This is our tease. You have to stay tuned later when we go through all that stuff about listening to us in other places and things. So Stay tuned, everyone, to hear what someone thinks about us. <laughs> yes check that out so let's go ahead and talk about news before we get to that and into the feature so we have an announcement about a new comic 
series, well, a mini series, I should say, a story arc, like Noah's Ark, but with a C instead of a K, but a new story arc from IDW, and it's called Through the Mirror, and this is a series that is spun off from Mirror Broken. That's exciting. Mirror Broken, I think, was a highlight of Star Trek comics last year. So to uh, get a sequel to that, uh, something that I, as far as I know, anyway, the, the sales of Mirror Broken were quite good and people critically responded to it quite well. So maybe not a surprise that it's getting a sequel, but very, very welcome news for sure. Yeah, and it's the same writers and the same artists. So Scott Tipton and David Tipton will be writing it. And also J.K. Woodward will be doing the art, just like with the other series. So this is five issues, and it's a five-week event, and it's going to be in the month of May here in 2018. So um, the story takes place in the Mirror Universe, but they get to encounter their Prime Universe counterparts. So this is the first to see a matchup of the Mirror and the Prime Universe TNG casts together. Very cool. Uh, we'll have to get Amy Nelson back on to talk about these, I think. You know, it's it's tradition at this point, right? Do you think she'd want to come on? I don't know. I, 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 I There may have been some rumblings on Twitter that she might maybe be excited about coming on to talk about those. But uh, I don't know. Maybe that's actually just her mirror universe counterpart trying to throw us off the trail or something. Well, that tweet that you're talking about is how I initially found out that this series was coming. That was my clue. (laughs) I was like, what is she talking about? And then I was looking further. I was like, oh, yeah. And I saw IDW uh, make the announcement and IGN broke the news. So pretty exciting. So, of course, like you mentioned, Dan, we'll be covering that here on Literary Treks because that's what we do. We cover the comics. Excellent. And the books and the comics and the books and the comics. So let's go ahead and go into the feature and talk about a book. Sounds good. I will see you there. Spock's World came out in September of 1988. And we're going to discuss it here in 2018. How exciting is that? It's been 30 years since this book came out. This is the 30th. Am I doing my math correctly? (laughs) You are. Absolutely. Dan's look on his face is kind of like, hmm, really? No, that was, that was me reflecting on, wow, 30 years. That's insane. And I don't want to think about how old I am now, but. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. (laughs) Yeah. Just the look on your face. I thought you were like, hmm, is he sure it's 30 years? But yeah, I can't believe it's 30 years. Uh, Well, the September will make it 30 years. And with us to discuss this book is Justin Ozer from Earl Grey. How are you doing there, Earl Grey man? I'm doing very well and happy to be here discussing this particular novel today. Excellent. Yes. Happy to have you on. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. I know it's been a few months. Do you read Star Trek books? (laughs) A few. Maybe every week. (laughs) About (laughs) every week. Because you... Your challenge is to read every Star Trek novel. It it, right? it absolutely is. So currently I'm at 154. I think I have 600 some odd uh, to go, plus any that you know come out in the ensuing years that it takes me to 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 get there. So that 154 has been in. Uh, it'll be four years later this year that it's taken to get to that point, and uh, 
many more years of Trek novels to go, and I'm happy about that. But yeah, my goal is to read every official Star Trek novel and short story collection. Interesting. That's so you're, you're probably kind of appreciating a little bit this hiatus that we're on at the moment for new I, Star Trek novels. Actually, yeah. I mean, I know for the people out there that have read all of them, they're like, oh, no new Star Trek novels. But for me, yeah, it's a, it's a chance to catch up because when they are coming out, when they were coming out like once a month, it was like, okay, I get three ahead and then I'd have to read one more <laughs> instead of, you know, four in a month or something like that. So yeah, it, mm-hmm. it, it gives me a chance to, to catch up a bit. Although it's still going to take, I don't know, 12, 15 years <laughs> to do the rest of it probably. <laughs> well, still, I mean, yeah, well, you've, got, you've knocked a good chunk out. That's pretty impressive. I've, yeah, I mean, I've had to really dedicate pretty much all of my, uh, you know, reading that I do in my free time to Star Trek novels. But when I get, you know, a goal like that, I'm, I'm going to do it to the end. <laughs> so, yeah. That's so great. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I want to do that. I always said I was going to do it and I've just fallen behind over time. Well, you've chosen to read some I'm... other stuff. You read Star Wars novels and other stuff. I read like only Star Trek novels. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's what oh, that's almost what you have to do if you're going to try to exactly. read them all. And we're not helping things because you read Spock's World, what, maybe last fall? Um, it was it about a year and a half ago. ago, like late 2016. Oh, OK. Yeah, so, so I reread it. So you're knocking me one behind. <laughs> oh, no, man. I, 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 I love it because I love this novel so much. So I, I don't mind rereading okay. a few here and there. Well, I'm glad you love this novel so much. So tell us just briefly, just to start things off, what is it that you love so much about this novel? Let's see. So, well, I mean, one of the things is Diane Duane's writing style. I mean, actually, I've only read one other Diane Duane novel, which is Dark Mirror, but she has a way with descriptions and opening books and chapters that just kind of gives you a feeling of, you know, the immensity and beauty of, you know, space and planets forming and all kinds of of, of things. So I love her writing style. But then also, you know, the two things here, Vulcan's past and Vulcan's present, are just totally fascinating to see what she's adding to what we know about, about you know, the history of Vulcan and about Vulcans. And it's just really compelling the way that she kind of weaves that together and uh, and kind of makes it into a whole, even though there are, you know, two very different time periods often going on here. And also, you know, I, I love... In particular, one part, the the philosophy of Surak is just, it's beautiful the way that she's written it, and it really just feels profound and, and moving. So there's just so many different elements. I feel like, I think I said before the recording, we could talk about this probably for 10 podcasts and not cover it all, because there's just so much going on and so much that I love about it. I just enjoyed every moment, you know, rereading the novel. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you're right, it's got these two different aspects to it it's what's happening in the present day of taking place sometime after the motion picture i'm guessing a few years maybe because we've got another refit of the enterprise Yeah, i think it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be a few years after yeah and uh then the other storyline are are different stories taking place in the history of vulcan and dan you put in our notes two 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 books in one well it's a bargain (laughs) you know you are getting two books absolutely no this is it's really interesting because in alternating chapters in this book you have one chapter set in you know quote unquote the present day 
Uh, and those cha- those chapters are all labeled Enterprise. So in that storyline, you've got this planet-wide referendum to consider the question of Vulcan secession from the Federation, which is interesting how that all comes about and how that unweaves un- throughout the story. And then this second story, the chapters, the alternating chapters are titled Vulcan. And starting from the very beginning, like the formation of the star and the planets, you know, that make up the 40 Eridani system where Vulcan is, all the way up through to uh, Sarek's tenure as ambassador to the Federation from Vulcan. So you've got all of these chapters and each one is just kind of this snippet of you know, kind of a, a little glimpse into the life of a Vulcan or a couple Vulcans at various points throughout Vulcan's history. And, you know, um, you talked about how expansive and how epic uh, Diane Duane is able to make this universe feel in this book. And man, does that ever come across in those chapters? Like you said, the the just the feeling of scope and immensity it makes this feel really real like a real place where real people evolved and and created a civilization it's just it's it's hard to put into words exactly the feelings this book generates and and you know some of those those chapters i think especially some of the early ones feel very cinematic to me like you can imagine it as a movie about vulcan where you're seeing all of these scenes of the formation of the star and of the planet and time passing and then you know looking at the the planet as a whole and kind of zooming down to look at these you know one person or, or group of people that that's the thing that I love about her writing it's not like it's oftentimes not like start chapter and there's some some dialogue or you know some regular description it really feels just vivid and like I can really imagine it like as a movie in my head mm-hmm it's almost like you could not just see Vulcan, but smell it. Mm. And and what I mean by that is just because it's like all your senses take over. It's like, cause you really do feel like you're really getting a good sense of what it's like to be there. It's just not a picture. It's just not a description of a few colors and a few objects that are around, but it really seems to go really deep into describing what, what is there and, 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 and how it's there and why it's there and, and just it, the whole sense of it all. I mean, it, it is true. I mean, there's times I've read some of her books where I feel like it goes on a little too much, but you know, I, some books I can go th- sit down and just fly right through it. This is one of those books where you just have to say, no, wait a second, I'm going to take my time. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to immerse myself deeply into this and just take your time and read it and once you start doing that you just fall into it and the words don't they're not even words anymore they're just sensations mm. well i'm getting mm. very zen here <laughs> <laughs> no but that. it's it's yeah it's very accurate you're absolutely right it's that's you know that those are the feelings that this book kind of inspires and you know i, I found myself thinking a lot especially during those vulcan chapters of you know, when televised Trek came the closest to describing Vulcan like this. And it really wasn't until the three-parter Enterprise episode Mm -hmm. where, you know, it finally felt like there was some some of that wonder and immensity of the Vulcan culture and the the history of Surak and, and, 
even be, even before that, like just the idea of this, you know, desert that's tested Vulcans for millennia. And, you know, we never really got that till those Enterprise episodes. And this book is just it. Oh, man, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, that's a good connection because, yeah, you do see some of that 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 scope and some of the kind of the feelings and sensations of Vulcan in that arc, which is one of my favorite things in, in Star Trek. And I actually thought about that, you know, quite a bit because T'Pau has a place in this book and I'm thinking about the, the younger T'Pau as well. So, yeah, I think that's very appropriate. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Enterprise because this book, as we mentioned earlier, was written in, and published in 1988. And of course, Enterprise came much later, starting in 2001. And I hadn't thought about it until you said it, but when I was reading the book, visually, I kept referring back to Enterprise more mm-hmm. than any other series. So it, it kept making me reflect to Enterprise but Enterprise wasn't even in existence at the time of the writing of this book. So it's really interesting. And, and and Dan, have you read this book before? We didn't cover that. I read this a few years ago, still fairly recently. Um, I'd say maybe two or three years ago uh, when I was living overseas and, you know, looking for new things to read. And it was really easy to download Star Trek novels <laughs> onto my e-reader. So Uh, This was one that, of course, a lot of people over the years have said is an incredible Star Trek novel. So I thought, ah, what the heck, I'll I'll add that to my list and read it. And uh, I was not steered wrong. And which led me to read all of Diane Duane's novels after that. So oh, you've read uh, all the ones she's written? I have, yeah, since then, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, her style of writing, it's just so easy to get immersed in. And I would say of all of them, this this one is my absolute favorite. Uh, actually, a, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, Dayton Ward uh, put out solicitations for like, uh, you know, the Star Trek novel, if you only read one, you should read and why. And I wrote a pretty impassioned defense for this novel being like, if you could only read one Star Trek novel, this is probably the one. Yeah, I think that's a good call. I I don't know exactly when I read this, but it was early in my Star Trek reading, which would have been the early 90s. And I have the hardcover book here, and the original price on the inside cover was $16.95, but I have a price tag on the back that shows I bought it at an outlet for $3.99. Nice. (laughs) Very nice. So, yeah, I would say probably by the time I read this, the book had been out for about probably five years six years at that point but uh so we did reach out to diane and uh there were some discussions of her trying to join us but she has the flu this week so you know um that's unfortunate and uh i I know she's feeling better and she may be listening to the show i don't know but uh, we may hear her on a future episode about one of her other books so that would be pretty exciting too um so let's go ahead and get into the two aspects of the book, we'll start on the Vulcan side of things, and then we'll get in more present-day Enterprise. So, uh, as we mentioned, we really explore Vulcan through its history of really at the start of Vulcan all the way up to um, pretty much close to present day. And so we'll go through each of the ones, not in really, really great detail, because like Justin said, we would be here for 10 episodes. <laughs> and I have to get up early in the morning. I, I can't stay up all night recording 10 episodes. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about that evolution that we were talking about. That's Vulcan 1 in the book. Now, for me, 
that was probably my least favorite of them. But I think it's one of those ones that once I got deep in the book, I realized I should go back and reread it because I'm so used to a certain style of book and I wasn't thinking about what style this is. And so I was going in expecting one thing and not another because it's been forever since I read the book. So what'd you guys think? I thought it was a really interesting way to start the book off. Like like you said, it's definitely outside the norm for Star Trek novels. It seemed, uh, you know, the first time I was reading this, it seemed odd, you know, like, oh, okay. But it really does. I mean, it's Spock's world. It is the history of Vulcan from the very beginning. I thought it was a fun way to introduce the idea. Yeah, I actually love that that first Vulcan chapter. I mean, for all the reasons I was describing before, but, you know, the first time I read it, it really pulled me in because it was quite different from what I've read in other Star Trek novels. And it gave me this really vivid description. And I think it's a bold choice to make because basically in that chapter, it's talking about the formation of the star and the planet and Takut, I think it is, if that's how you pronounce it, the, you know, sister planet. Uh, And you know, it ends before it can talk about any life really at all. So I thought that was a bold choice, but I, I really like it. And it really kind of drew me in and was one of the first things I loved about the, well, I loved it from before that because there's a little before, but I, I like that uh, chapter a lot. Well, especially if you're into astronomy <laughs> and I mean, this is science fiction. So it, it really dives into that whole creation of, of how this planet and that and its solar system and such were created. It, it got to a point where I started feeling like I was reading a history book, even though this isn't real history. But once I got into that frame of mind, it started working for me more. Mm-hmm. Like this is something that actually happened and it felt so real. And I think that's that's a good setup to the book because it gets to what we were talking about before where it just feels deep and real. This, it feels like a, like Vulcan is a real planet. It doesn't feel like it's made up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, and that goes to what we were talking about before that it really does make it feel real. Like I, I almost with this first chapter felt like I was, you know, picking up a book off a library shelf in the 23rd century, all about, you know, the origins of Vulcan and and that sort of thing. Like it really creates this verisimilitude in that universe that I really loved. Well, and the book starts with a prologue and that's not what we're talking about here, but the prologue is in present day. And then it goes to Enterprise 1, Vulcan 1, Enterprise 2, Vulcan 2, so on and so forth. And so we're kind of jumping all over the place and we're going to focus on the Vulcan one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then uh, we'll hit the Enterprise one. So then, at this point, past this chapter, we would be into Enterprise two, going now into Vulcan two, and these are the early Vulcans. These are the ones that almost like prehistoric, like the cavemen, but not like cavemen. But there, there's a guy that's a wanderer. There are tribes, and he wanders and and far off places and such, and. He even interacts with a creature that's almost like a, they refer to as almost kind of being like a dinosaur. That lives under (laughs) the sand, right? Is that? Yeah. 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 Did anyone else kind of picture the sandworms from Dune? Because I couldn't really shake that image out of my head. (laughs) (laughs) 
I did. I thought of that, and I also thought of Star Wars Rebels. There was just something mm-hmm. about the story that reminded me of the uh, current storyline in Rebels and how they they interact with basically the nature of creatures on a certain planet that that uh, that's been going on the season. So it kind of reminded me of that because this creature is communicating with. Them. I have a question about some of these chapters that are about like the prehistory of Vulcan before they really write anything down, because. It, it it seemed like, like at first I was like, oh, this is supposed to be as if you're, you know, omniscient and you could be there. But some of it seemed like a little simplified that things could happen that way or happen that quickly. So it made me wonder if instead of uh, trying to actually be what would happen, if this would have been more the kind of myths and stories that Vulcans have. What, what do you guys think? Mm. That's possible. I didn't really take it that way when I read it. I didn't take it that way when I read it, but now that I think about it and how simplified it is, I'm thinking, I wonder if that's more the intention because it seemed like Mm -hmm. a little simple, like this one guy is so important and institutes so much change and all of a sudden, like the next day, they have language and songs and stuff, so. (laughs) No, that's a good point. It's, It's almost as if the first chapter starts off, like I said, for me, like a history book. It's the history, and then these are more like myths, Mm. Vulcan myths, that there's some truth, but they're legends. There's always a bit of truth in a legend, but it might not be entirely true, because some of it's a little odd in the fact that there's a creature kind of speaking, in a sense, to this And that comes up later in other chapters, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting, too, because they use telepathy in a lot of ways to communicate with each other, not language. And as he sees Mount Salea and some other things, he's trying to describe it back to his people. And he can't really get them to understand because he can't explain things in words. It's like he can only send images. I almost imagined his his mind was like you know, sending a, a JPEG to them and they were like downloading it and looking at this image. That's what it felt like because they were talking about like mental pictures, but. Yeah, no, that's uh, that, that whole chapter, this second chapter for me, I, I really loved the imagery in it. Um, especially the, the way it was written from the perspective of someone who doesn't have the experience or the language to describe what he's seeing when he first encounters Mount Salea, for example, and just the immensity of it kind of explaining, even just first seeing the sky, you know, yeah. on a regular, like the immensity of the sky and to cut in the sky after having lived under trees his entire life, you know, just the idea of this canopy that's, you know, you can see the sky a bit through it, but until you get out of it, you don't realize how immense it is and to cut in the sky this again, this imagery is just so good. And, uh, I I really liked that idea of, like you said, sending images or that kind of thing. They don't, they don't yet have the language or the experience to put a context to the new things that he's discovered. So I'm wondering if you guys thought what I was thinking when I was reading this, I thought, Oh, this is probably, uh, the start of, Surak's story that this wanderer's him. Did you think that at any point? No. Because I was like thinking maybe this was getting to Well, this felt like him. much further back in history than mm-hmm. than we know that, that Surak would be. I, I yeah. didn't actually have that thought, no. I mean it felt yeah, like somebody okay. who was 
I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years before or something like that? Yeah, I got the feeling this was like very early tribal Vulcans, you know, before, way before that. And Surak was only, you know, a couple thousand years ago, something yeah. like that. 1500 5, something yeah, just, years ago, just, something like that. Yeah, that's not that long ago. <laughs> well, on, on, scheme of on geological timescales and, and rise of species, that's not very long ago at all. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true, so yeah. true. I think one thing that's interesting about that chapter is it sets up the outsider or the person who thinks different as like an engine for change in Vulcan society. Whereas, you know, we're used to seeing or thinking about Vulcans as pretty much the same you know, trying to, as they put in this book, master their emotions instead of suppress their emotions, and that, you know, believe in the philosophy of Surak and nonviolence and all of that. But but you're getting to see in these chapters an earlier form and that the the in order to get to the Vulcans that we know, like from, you know, the original series, that there needs to be these outsiders or people that think different that institute some kind of change. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Dan, I know that you have mentioned that they're not a monolithic society like we typically think of Vulcans. Yeah, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book is, you know, up until, you know, this point in Star Trek, Vulcans are, you know, pretty much all the same. Like Sarek is, you know, the, the stereotypical Vulcan, totally without emotion as far as we know. And incapable of lying and always do the right thing and are very, you know, emotionless and staid and logical. And Spock is, you know, always striving to that, if not, you know, outright showing that at all times. And this book I found, especially in the Enterprise chapters, when we when we see more even post Surak's Reformation, there are still lots of Vulcans that follow, you know, different strands of what the book calls Scythia or what we, we translate supposedly as logic, you know, different Vulcans take different ideas from that, but, you know, and there's a few that follow it by the letter and very closely, but as many different Vulcans as there are, are different ways of following Surak's teachings and being Vulcan, which I thought was really interesting. And that's one of the things I loved about this novel is that you got to see so many uh, different Vulcans from different time periods, and even in you know present day Enterprise chapter, you get to see a lot of different types of, of Vulcans and different, you know, even ways that they might might look or might act. And and I, I mean, up to this point, I think you hadn't seen much of that because for the most part, it was like it's Spock or it's Sarek or a little bit here and there. Maybe it's, you know, to power some other Vulcans, but you didn't really get to see much. So you get to see like this whole kind of diverse planet of, of Vulcans and it's, it's, it's great. And you can do that best in a novel, I think. Yeah. And again, that gets back to what we were talking about earlier. It makes things feel more real, more rich. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems more believable because not all Vulcans are the same. And to me, again, it refers back to Enterprise when I was reading this. It's like, you know, this just shows you that, you know, when Enterprise came out, a lot of people complained, the Vulcans don't act that way. Vulcans aren't like that. Well, not all Vulcans are the same. You know, they're they're like a pack of lights, lifesavers. There's different flavors <laughs> of Vulcans. Vulcan lifesavers. There's even a blonde Vulcan who's a real jerk. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yes. We're going to get to that one later. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to three, Vulcan three. This one was my favorite of the Vulcan stories. 
I, I don't know why. Uh, I, it was just about this, this tribe and they, there's different tribes, uh, throughout Vulcan. And I got the sense that there's a particular geographical area of the plant Vulcan where a lot of these tribes are, but you know, water is very scarce. And so they congregate around different areas where some water is, and, and there isn't much water where this tribe is. And there's this one character named Kesh. And she's very much of the opinion of, you know, there's this other tribe that's near, you know, a great water supply and, and we should go over there and, you know, we should take over and, and, and we have an advantage because this tribe, she and others in the tribe have this different aspect to their eyes where they can see in the bright sun where other Vulcans on the planet have a hard time seeing in the brightness of the sun. So they have to hunt at night. They have the ability, this tribe to go out there during the day and hunt and see. So they feel like they have this advantage over this other tribe, but this, um, this oldest mother who runs the tribe says, no, we, we shouldn't do that. And we shouldn't, you know, so on so far I don't want to go too far into it, but I really enjoyed this story. And I was just wondering what you guys thought. Yeah, this was another really great chapter. I really like that character of Kesh and seeing things from her her perspective. And also, just tying into continuity, the idea of Vulcans having an inner eyelid is something that came up in the original series. So we see the origins of that here, which is, you know, just a nice little touch. And I love stuff like that. Yeah, because not all Vulcans have it, but this tribe we're seeing that start to develop. Mm-hmm. And eventually, of course, presumably their genes will spread throughout the whole population and then all Vulcans will. So it's it's really cool. And yeah, this, you know, kind of uh, origin of intertribal warfare here. And, and we see Vulcan moving in that direction of, of becoming a bit of a more martial society and, and more uh, aggressive towards each other. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting chapter. I mean, I guess one thing we didn't mention is in the in the previous chapter when there's this wanderer that uh, you know brings language and advances things in that way. Shortly thereafter, there's a solar flare that basically you know burns a lot of the the vegetation on on the planet. So in then in this chapter, it leads to all of this scarcity and all of these conflicts. So I like that it's kind of laying the the groundwork and. It, and what's really great about this is it builds it up because there's the start of that kind of uh, conflict and warfare that just kind of builds and builds until it kind of reaches a climax, you know, several Vulcan chapters later. So it's not like it's trying to just wrap up, here's the conflict and it got really bad, but it just kind of builds it up. And this is kind of the the start of that. And I like that it's laying the groundwork and it was it was very interesting just to see and you can do this in a novel to have all of these discussions within the the tribe what's the best thing to do we should do this we should do that time passes you know something happens and or i i just love that like within this novel like diane duane is taking the time to really kind of build the framework and and just you know, have everything just kind of, you know, breathe and happen naturally. Nothing at all feels rushed in here to me. And, and, and I really love that. I mean, especially in this chapter, it could have been a short thing like, we need water, let's take it. But it was a much like longer discussion and progression over the course of some years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, uh, like you said, she, um, she goes into great depth into everything. But at the same time, I get the feeling that there's not a single wasted part Mm -hmm. either like every single line 
in every chapter feels necessary to the story too, because like there's no extraneous stuff. There's no, there's no fluff. It's all building this story and it's just a great story. (laughs) Well, a lot of authors are given deadlines that to me, it felt as if they told her take as much time as you. Well, do you know this, Mm -hmm. the story behind this novel? Uh, no. no. Yeah. So do tell, you know, voyages of the imagination, which is, an amazing compilation of all Star Trek, you know, novels and short stories up to 2006. So they interviewed a number of authors and one of the authors they interviewed was Diane Duane for Spock's world. And basically she was almost done the week before it was due. And she was doing it on a computer in the late eighties and her hard drive crashed. She lost most of it and had to rewrite 60,000 words of it within a week. So a lot of what you're reading, she had to, write in a very short span of time and under a lot of pressure, which is extraordinary because it's so good. (laughs) And for that to have happened, and I think in the interview, she said she felt that because she had to rewrite a lot of it, that it actually turned out better than before. Wow, that's incredible. (laughs) I I hadn't heard that. That's amazing. (laughs) It really is. I mean, especially considering we're praising it so much and we love it so much. I mean, she had this big thing happen where she lost a lot of it and had to rewrite it quickly. I have to say, I, I used to really admire Diane Duane and think she's an amazing writer. Now I'm kind of scared of her. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. But it, now that makes sense in a lot of ways because I've been in situations in the past where I've had something I wrote and I lost or what similar situation. And then you're just going off memory and things are coming back. But then the second time you write it, you feel like it actually turned out better because it's almost like you're improving upon what you've already done. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's 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 really interesting. And I'm sure I read that because I have the book you're talking about, which is an incredible book to get because there's so much insight. But it's like 800 pages. Novels. You can't remember all of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but um, yeah, I mean, when I read that, I was like, wow, that that that's pretty incredible because I think if I had written this, you know, this kind of novel and I had lost it, I think I just would have been like, I don't even know what to do now. <laughs> I mean, that, oh, that no. happened to me in university when I lost a 12 page paper and had to, I had, I think a day still to rewrite it. And like, that was bad enough. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Oh, there would but be so you, many did tears. Did you feel like you wrote it better? Uh, maybe. I honestly don't know in that case. <laughs> Well, I just want to let you know that I just realized we are not recording, so we're going to have to redo this whole show <laughs> over again, so it'll be even better. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course. If everybody's hearing this, you know we're recording. <laughs> so, Vulcan 4, uh, this is this one to me was a little strange. I enjoyed it, but it was a little different because there's this character here who has this mind power that when she's bonding with her mates, her mind power is killing them it can happen at other <laughs> times too right if she gets really angry that's the sense i got yeah. mm-hmm. like the incredible Hulk. yeah <laughs> it was wow yeah <laughs> when i got to this one i mean of course i'm rereading it but i'd forgotten about it i was like wow killing with your mind you know uh that really takes it to another level i mean and it's something that the, <laughs> i think later on they end up you know selling some of this talent and all this stuff but it's not something that we really know about from what's on screen, right? The power to just, <laughs> for Vulcan to just kill someone with their mind, as far as I remember. So it was really mm-hmm. kind of interesting to read about that. Yeah, definitely some uh, interesting things that, that seem to 
at least maybe not contradict, but at least not really aren't really corroborated by anything we've seen on screen. So it's kind of interesting that to me, and I mean, I'm going to bring out the the dreaded C word in Star Trek canon. It feels like the book deviates a bit from what people would consider canon, but, uh, you know, not in any really egregious it, ways. Just I mean, it's you know, not, I, I don't think it's necessarily basically. contradicted by anything that's, yeah, exactly. that's on screen. It's more like, wow, this is some incredible thing that they had to suppress, I guess. Although, actually, you know, I recently uh, watched the, uh, the Gambit two-parter in The Next Generation. There is mm. actually a Vulcan weapon where you can kind of focus and kill with the power of your mind. So that might support it a little bit. I had that thought about that while reading this as well. You know, the idea of killing with a thought aided by technology, yes, but yeah. still that similar idea for sure. And, and it wasn't as if all the Vulcans have this ability. It's no, unique yeah. to her. Well, and then it's but then it spreads somewhat through the gene pool, right? Yeah. But. Yeah, there's different Later on, we get into there's different psi talents that kind of get traded and, and bartered around kind of thing. Uh, people going to different houses and um, almost kind of a, a eugenics kind of breeding type program where, you know, there's hmm. traits that are useful. So we're going to breed this family with that family and create, you know, offspring that that have that talent and that it's sort of interesting thing. because I thought of it more like, you know, what, what you saw in earlier times in, in earth, there would be these different powers and different kingdoms and they'd want, you know, their sons and daughters to marry. And because they, but that I guess was more because they wanted to bond together the different, you know, kingdoms or, or areas than that, you know, they have some special killing power or something like that. <laughs> it's quite, it was quite interesting, but like I, I saw it also as, you know, in the previous chapter, they start with warfare, and now they're taking that kind of to like a whole nother level with these mind-killing powers that they make make use of that can be really devastating. It's 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 kind of like it's accelerating toward the point that you see with with Surak where things really kind of get out of hand. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and and that's the thing. I mean, you know, we are talking Vulcans, but it's before Surak, so we're we're dealing with emotions and. And such, and this felt almost like the Shakespearean story of this whole book to me, because you're mm-hmm. dealing with this high house and and the families, and using uh, one family marries has her married in and wants to use this yeah. to continue through the bloodline as a weapon, and she, okay, well, yeah, I mean, if anybody hasn't figured, we're going into spoilers, but you know, she basically, you know, her husband is then killed and she sacrifices herself and it's and like she kills a bunch you know. of people and like whoa yeah. yeah it's really something like actually it made me think like i could see that happening on romulus <laughs> you know uh but of course this i think is before well, there's the offshoot right mm-hmm. right yeah. but their their bloodline may be <laughs> yeah the ones that went to and Rom- I, I i would romulus. say these early vulcans have more in common with romulans than they do with yeah. the later vulcans too it feels, because absolutely. It, it, it feels you like know. it yeah uh, yeah. Then we get to Vulcan Five, which is takes place on a mining ship, mm. and they find diamonds. And I I like this story a lot too because I like the fact that when they found these diamonds, they were rich and they could you know basically retire. They don't have to ever work again. And then the the old man, the 
the father or whatever of this family that's on the ship is like, no, we got to just keep going. Got to keep working. As, you <laughs> the money's got to stay like, on the ship. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. They're like, screw and you. Then, we're out of here. Yeah. Well, and then, oh, then it escalates and turns into just a whole bloodbath. And then uh, like, I mean, it feels like it's just escalating to another level because it starts off like a conflict with between some different families because they're out there in space um you know I, because they don't really i guess have like a military in space it's more like merchant ships but some of them have weapons or but it leads to like all of this escalating conflict it's 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 quite interesting and it it, it made me think also like if vulcans know about this kind of history and what you know greed could do that they you know would be very much you know seeing the, the the logic and trying to control that kind of thing because it could just quickly get out of hand, right? Mm -hmm. This this chapter to me was heartbreaking because mm -hmm. there's a certain point in the chapter where you just, it's inevitable what's going to happen and you know yeah. what's going to happen. And you just really wish that someone would make a different decision at some point and stop it all from happening. But of course... They're all going to die, and this ship yeah. is going to, you know, career. I mean, do you think it really would have been different if, if, if kind of the the head of the house was like, yeah, let's split it and go our separate ways? Would it have been okay, or would people have it would just have still escalated because everybody wanted to have all of it? <laughs> I mean, I hope not. It it feels like the way they were talking, there was enough wealth that. Yeah. I mean, you hope for the best for people, and yeah. you know, if you put yourself in that situation, I'm like. I think I'd be yeah. okay with just my Hope. share and just like leave me alone You'd with hope. mine and well, I'll and go. Well, and there's a war going on and I feel like it's still they still would have gotten shot down as confusion from That could be. But the, yeah. but this chapter felt it kind of felt like a, a Greek tragedy like, you know, there's this inevitable thing that's happening and there's just absolutely nothing you can do because of the actions of some of the characters and it's just going to happen. It was yeah, it was heartbreaking. That's yeah, that's it exactly. That's exactly how I felt. <laughs> It's interesting going through it chapter by chapter because there's all these different kinds of things going on. It's like, you know, history of the solar system and the planet being formed and, you know, getting a language and warfare and conflict and, you know, traits gone out of control and greed. I mean, it's like she's doing all these different kinds of stories in each of, of the chapters, right? They're all each different from each other. Right. And they're all leading up now to this chapter, which is Vulcan 6, which... What happens there, Justin? What we now led up to this moment? Yeah, we've led up to the moment where we get to see Sirach. Who <laughs> it was interesting. The first time I read it, I was like, "Oh, so he's Sirach's like a computer programmer in an office building." Okay, <laughs> like I always, <laughs> yeah. I always imagined he was just well. I guess because of my uh, my view from what we see in that Vulcan arc in in Enterprise has colored it because I'm like, oh, he's just you know out in the desert but but yeah he's just basically like a programmer in an office and there's kind of this escalating warfare that's happened but all of a sudden you know there is i guess it's like a matter antimatter explosion on the the sister planet to and he is just and like the news moves right past it like oh yeah there's this huge crater whatever let's go on to the next thing and he is just incredibly profoundly affected by it and it kind of leads him down the road toward his philosophy. And I think, as I mentioned toward the beginning, this might be my favorite chapter in the entire book because, like, I, th I think it's a lot to live up to to say, you know, this is the person who 
is the founder of the most important philosophy that infects Vulcans thousands of years later and trying to write for that. But the way that Diane Duane writes for it, it's just profound and moving. And like there are parts in there, especially the part, there's like an extended part about casting out fear that feels so incredibly relevant to right now and has provided just like a lot of inspiration to me ever since I read it. I mean, it's it's some of the, I think it's some of the best stuff I've read in any novel, Star Trek or otherwise, just getting into that that philosophy. It's, for me, it's it's incredible. And this is like the best part of the whole book for me, at least. Yeah, this is an incredible chapter. There's so much vivid imagery again in this. The, the news media thing, for example, mm. felt sadly familiar. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, you get news reports of, you know, this happened overseas. These people were killed here. This happened here. This, you know, and it's just, wow, does that ever feel familiar? And I, I yeah. think that's very much on purpose, of course. I think Diane Duane is is trying to splash a little bit of cold water on the reader as well to make you think, but it, you know, what's going on on Earth? It, it feels but, even more relevant, you know, 30 years later than it would have then. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's the saddest part too. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then to me, the one part that really struck me and, it, and it's kind of an odd part that just made me, I don't know, empathize with Sirach or something was where he's taken the family's air car and is just driving, mm-hmm. just flying and thinking. And, you know, I've done that sort of thing before where, um, you just take your car down the highway and drive and yeah. end up somewhere and then turn around and go home. But he, he never really goes home. He, you know, he, he does return home briefly, but then he sets out to develop this philosophy and, and, you know, figure out a new way for his people. And it's just, it's, it's something that's really, I don't know if inspiring is the right word, but it just really made me get what this guy is all about, you know? And, like you said, I wouldn't have expected Surak to be some computer programmer in an office tower who just has an epiphany one day. Yeah. You know, he's... But that feels real, actually, that that kind of thing does. could he's happen. like us. That's yeah. exactly right. It, and, 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 and if you look at all the great heroes, even in our history, a lot of them would probably be very similar to that. You know, like if you knew them on a day-to-day basis, they're just people. They're just people who had an idea. And that's what Surak is. And I love that. Yeah, I love that too. And I, I and I think, you know, it's even said in the chapter, like, you know, there's was really nothing special about his family or about him when he was born. He was just a regular person who one day just kind of had enough and had to seek out something different. I mean, and and that feels real as well when you when you see, you know, stories of of different, you know, philosophers and great religious figures in the history of Earth. Oftentimes they're just a regular person that just has like this moment where they realize that they need to say something different, you know, in, in order to, to spread a certain message. So it's, it it felt like very real, like that, that could happen. My only complaint with this chapter is that Serac needs more than a chapter. I Mm. I, I really feel that it, because we're trying to tell his, his influence and how he changed things within one chapter, it moves, fairly quickly Hmm. where I'd like to go deeper into that. I almost feel like this chapter needs to be taken out now and expanded upon into its own novel. 
but the story needed to be tell, told in this book. So yeah. it had to stay within the chapter, but I want more is what I'm getting at. I feel like there could be so much more that goes in, into him. Well, what um, you need to do, Bruce, then is put together an outline, title it Surak, and give it to pocketbooks and see what they say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because if I they have a contract, maybe I will. Are there any, I mean, are there <laughs> other novels about Sirach or that have him in it? We've talked about uh, doing Sirach's Soul, wasn't that? Yeah, there's an Enterprise, Enterprise oh, yeah, novel yeah. called Sirach's Soul. I haven't read it. But. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't read it either, either so I'm, I'm not sure maybe. what it's all about. But And I'm sure be. there's some in some other books I can't yeah. recall. Top but but no, I, I mean, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I'm kind of with you, Bruce, because it was just so captivating. I probably wanted to read about that for an entire novel. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right, because it's wow, and and I think that would be a really great novel. I think that would yeah. be that would be an incredible read. Sirach's world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so then we end with uh, Vulcan Seven, which is about Sarek's early career and how he meets Amanda, and with some generic genetic testing, and we they're able to have Spock. Um, He's a he's, I mean, I Spock's a designer baby, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was no mention about Michael Burnham, which confused me, or Cybok. I, I don't know why. <laughs> Did anyone else find themselves, you know, trying to put, for example, Michael Burnham in here? I don't think there's a lot I, of room to fit Cybok in, unfortunately. Yeah. There's just too many changes. You know, like but, the... The, 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 what what I found myself doing actually was comparing it to the novel Sarek, which has mm. uh, like a, a two different things in it. It has a different story for how Amanda and Sarek meet. And also, I think Sarek is a good deal older in this novel than he's established to be in The Next Generation. So like mm. I was comparing that and I was like, no, he's not supposed to yet. But so... Yeah. Yeah. There's other things like they kept referring to uh, the Federation being around for 180 years, and it mm. wouldn't have been around. It would have been a, maybe mm, 110. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. No. 100. Yeah. 110. Maybe. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. So I, I found myself comparing it more than that to fit in Michael Burnham. Like with with the novel Sarek, I was trying to fit in Michael Burnham and Cybok and all that, which you can be like, oh, <laughs> there are some you know diary entries that we're not seeing because it's a whole life, but. But yeah, th- this is this is a different story. It's like an alternate story of Sarek. And I thought it was really interesting in the way that he meets Amanda and she's already knows Vul- the Vulcan language, has been on Vulcan. It actually kind of makes a bit more sense than what we see in Sarek where she's just been on Earth her whole life. So I- Yeah, because she was mm-hmm. working on the Universal Translator in this book. She was one of the developers of that. Yeah. Working with the, specifically the Vulcan translations yeah. yeah oh and i i love the parts in the novel where they actually took the time to go into certain concepts like logic and god and you know suppression of emotion and mastery of emotion i love that they kind of went into explaining those words and how it would be more accurate in vulcan which i think they talk about here too yeah and what's the word for logic how do you pronounce it it's c-t-h-i-a is it Cynthia? I, th- I thought it was Cynthia, but that's just kind of how i i said it in my head uh, I yeah. do love the definition that they give, and I, I've highlighted it here. Um, Amanda is talking about what the definition for that word is. She says, it's the modern Vulcan word, which we translate as logic, but what it more correctly means is reality truth, the truth about the universe, the way things really are, rather than the way we would like them to be. 
And I just, I love that as a concept because that is something that I think in a lot of public discourse at the moment and, you know, we can get into that, but I think that concept is missing a lot. You know, the idea of accepting facts and presenting the universe as it is rather than, you know, this idea of what we want it to be or molding the universe to fit what we believe or what we think it should be. I, I like that idea of logic. It, 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 it is an ideal, though, because, you know, the, the world or the universe as it is could be some, very much something that's up to debate and interpretation, and you could see reality different than someone else. I like how they define it here, but it, but like in a certain way on Vulcan, they have to agree to what that means. It's not self-evident what that reality truth is, right? Because there's mm-hmm. so many things you have to kind of interpret as you go about your life. But even at a at a very basic level, not discounting facts because they're inconvenient, using mm-hmm. all the the known variables to come up with. And again, like you say, it's an ideal to come up with the best possible way of looking at it. And I think the way that they do it is they try to, I think, as they say in the novel, master the emotion so that they can kind of look at things a bit from a remove to to try to see things a bit more objectively or to see where their their biases come in or are affecting their view of things. So if you're able to do that and say, oh, I probably wanted to set this aside because I have this certain bias, I think you can get you know closer to to a truth. But it's kind of something that because they have accepted Surak's philosophy, they're able to do and... I don't know. Humans find that more difficult. <laughs> yeah. Probably. And in the previous chapter, which we didn't mention, those who didn't follow his teachings, uh, we did see them reject him and leave Vulcan, who, of course, we know become the Romulans. So that was a piece in here about the Romulans that we didn't touch on. So, but yeah, I like the, I, I like the, what we're talking about here. And again, I think this gets back to her writing. It's not a Vulcan word or the way the Vulcans use a, one of our words isn't maybe exactly the definition or how we see things. So when a Vulcan says logic, we think of logic one way, their definition of logic is slightly different because we're talking about a totally different race. We're talking about totally different people, population on a different planet. They, their views are going to be different and it just enriches that more. It's just not so black and white. It just gets more gray, you know, it mm-hmm. gets more, just deep into these different things. Yeah, and I, I do love how there's that extended definition of it. It's not just logic, but it's something more than that or or other than that. So if you're trying to see it just as logic, you won't get the whole concept. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. makes sense because yeah. languages on earth are like that. There might be a word you might translate a certain way, but a native speaker would say, well, actually, it means this thing. And they'll give you like a whole paragraph about it, right? And if you take into account a brain that evolved on a different planet entirely, mm. I mean, that... I mean, it it wouldn't even be as close as they portrayed in Star Trek, obviously, but, you know, it would be orders of magnitude different in, you know, idea and concept. And the one thing before we leave this section about Vulcan is uh, to cut the the other planetary... Not a moon. Planet, or what? Not a moon. <laughs> and, and this is, I think, an answer to what we saw in the motion picture, the the artwork that was used when... Spock was going through Colinar and, and the big planet because it was mentioned previously that Vulcan has no moons, but yet there's this big looking moon, <laughs> therefore it must be a planet or whatever. But I like throughout this book, it's this 
it's almost like the watcher of everything. Yeah. It's almost like these stories are being told as if this planet is observing what's happening and is telling us the or is story. telling the story yeah i like how that was connected in all the vulcan sections and i, I think it's in some of the enterprise sections also it, it was nice that that mm-hmm. was yeah it did feel like it was the sister planet was kind of observing things and telling the story in a way mm-hmm. and those who watch the director's cut of the mission picture you will not see this this was redone <laughs> in the director's cut mm-hmm. differently so I love the the brief little kind of touch on it early on in the book. Vulcan has no moon, various Vulcans have been heard to remark, accurate as always when speaking scientifically. Damn right it doesn't, at least one Terran has responded. It has a nightmare. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so huge in the sky, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I also thought of Spock in uh, Star Trek 09, seeing Vulcan destroyed from Delta Vega, mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe... <laughs> That's the same planet, just under a different name. And that's why it's so close and he can see Vulcan explode or implode or whatever you want to call it. But so we spent a lot of time with Vulcan. So and we were, we're already an hour into this discussion. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now we got a whole nother section of this, which is present day. But I don't think we need to spend as much time because it's eight chapters, but it's one story. It's not all mm-hmm. these various stories. And so, um, Dan, I know that I think you said this is one of your favorite parts of the book yeah definitely and i mean my favorite part of the book happens to be the part of the book that i'm reading at the time i'm i kind of (laughs) discovered while reading this because there's just so many great things in this so we've got you know vulcan is threatening secession there's going to be a planet-wide referendum but before that happens there's a series of debates uh sort of debates, basically talks given by people to kind of argue for one side or the other. Should Vulcan secede or should Vulcan not secede? And these parts, these speeches for me in particular are just such great parts of the book. And I have to give a special shout out to Dr. McCoy's. I think (laughs) it's one of the most well-written character pieces in Star Trek novels anywhere. And I don't know about you guys, but like I heard DeForest Kelly giving those lines on stage. Oh, yeah. And I so good. Yeah, I the, the the speech that McCoy. I mean, there are some great speeches in here, but the speech by by McCoy against secession is absolutely incredible. I mean, it's one of the most well written you know speeches that I've ever seen anywhere. And just like the background that they give, also that McCoy has had this. RNA course to be able to to kind of uh, speak Vulcan more more like like a native and he throws in that stuff in the language man I want to see you know the the movie of this where DeForest Kelly is speaking Vulcan while he's doing the speech can you imagine I know I couldn't imagine just him speaking Vulcan just so fluently yeah and even it's touched upon here that it's it's a different dialect from different region of Vulcan. yeah he's it's picked like up a certain Vulcans- dialect I mean what is it like you know they they take the the RNA from a Vulcan from a particular area and he like absorbs it. I mean, it was kind of a wild explanation, but, but I, I, I love that. And yeah, the speech that he gives and, you know, when I first read this book, I was like, what is McCoy going to do? That's really going to convince people, but he gets them on his side. And at the end, like this auditorium full of Vulcans is giving him like a thunderous standing ovation. I actually like, there was a tear in my eye, like, Oh my God, McCoy is doing that and he hated Spock. You know, like, I mean, it was just like this whole like transformation and oh, yeah, I'm I'm with you, Dan. It was just 
incredible, incredible to, to read. And, and I mean, the other speeches are really good, too. Uh, Kirk's, of course, is, is very good. I think McCoy's is the best, personally. But again, you know, very similar. It's, it's hard to pin down. This is what a good writer can do. It's hard to pin down exactly how McCoy sounds so much like McCoy and how Kirk sounds so much like Kirk. But there's just just this slight difference in how they're written that it's so good. And uh, yeah, the, this this whole scene, it said it felt to me like they were kind of TED Talks on Vulcan <laughs> because, you know, the format's a little different. It's not like a, a debate like we would have on in debate club in high school or something like that. It's, you know, although people can stage, shout from the audience apparently to object. Yeah, yes. which was interesting. So, you know, a little different. Which didn't thing. seem very Vulcan to me. <laughs> there was a lot of laughter from the Vulcan crowd as well. And I was like, interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, little little pieces like that that felt a little different. But again, you know, that idea that this is a planet full of very different people that mm-hmm. have different interpretations yeah. and stuff. Apparently there's like really 14 and a half billion of them. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I saw that toward the end, I was like, wow, that's a lot of Vulcan. So, I mean, you've got to figure that some of them might be different or might feel more relaxed or act differently in this kind of situation. But it struck right. me like... Again, they're not all the same. That's what's so same. beautiful yeah. about this. Yeah. You know, to say something like, oh, Vulcans don't act that way. Well, no, because not all Vulcans are the same. You know, you look at a human and one human acts differently than another and there's different cultures of humans and such. It just totally makes sense. Um, one part in here that I... I really loved, and and again, this flashed me right back to that Enterprise three-parter, was this idea of, you know, why are the Vulcans so, and I I don't want to use this word necessarily, but why are they so afraid of humans? Like, this is, seems to be feeding a lot of the sentiment for the, the Vulcans who want to secede, is this fear of humans. And why is that? And there's a line, it says, a species that maybe reminds you a little too much of yourselves a while ago, confused and angry and afraid. And that's one of my favorite bits from the Enterprise episode when Admiral Forrest says to Ambassador Soval, are Vulcans afraid of humans? He said, why? And Soval says, well, there is one species that humans remind us of. And Forrest is like, you? And it's, it's the similarities between Earth and Vulcan that are the source of this fear, which I, I love so that as a concept. that's so touched on in this book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, absolutely. And, and what's interesting was that, like, in McCoy's speech and, and Kirk's speech, I think, as well, they, they get to, like, here is what Surak had to say, and here is why, by trying to secede, you are not um, doing things according to his, his teaching. So I, I do like that, that they were kind of bringing out, like, you're wanting to secede because you're afraid of the damage that humans can do to your society or, you know, the, the damage that they might do elsewhere. And you're part of this federation that's doing damage, but it's almost like they're, they're pointing up, like you are not following Surak's teachings to cast out your fear. You are Mm -hmm. being prey to that fear. Even if you don't want to acknowledge it, that's what it is. You know, they're afraid of the influence and somehow they're also afraid of the infinite diversity as well, which is another of, of Sirach's teachings. And I love in that chapter how they talk about how he comes, you know, to that epiphany. But but that's that's what was so great was that it was written in a way that, you know, McCoy, for example, could point up what 
you know, Sirach might feel about the situation or what his teachings might be, but it was done in a way that you could believe that the Vulcans who would have an open mind would be convinced by that, which is an incredible accomplishment because you would think that, you know, they would already have this prejudice against McCoy as, as a human and trying to, you know, take advantage of their teachings, but they can see his argument is a good one, you know, and, and really recognize that. I, I love that. And it makes a lot of sense. Well, and the thing about this book is this is called Spock's world. And as we talked earlier, we're getting this history of Vulcan and that is Spock's world. But yeah. this book isn't a Spock book. If anything, when to me in this present day story, this is more of a McCoy story, hmm. a Vulcan and McCoy story, because McCoy is the one that has the run in with the, jerk of a vulcan guy south <laughs> sath or whatever shaft, his name is shaft yeah. shaft yeah who's rude and everything and he starts saying oh there's something wrong with this vulcan there's something <laughs> going on he's the one who goes and yeah. does some inspections and goes to the library or whatever he does he's the one who starts figuring everything out mm. which we're used to spock being the one that is logical and putting the things together and it's kind of solving the mystery and then it's mccoy that makes really the big speech that's typical typical of more of Kirk. Yeah. And so I mm -hmm. felt that Spock and Kirk were basically along for the ride. <laughs> and McCoy's been, you know, taking this whole thing and 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 I I kept thinking back to her novel uh Diane Duane's novel Doctor's Orders which we covered on here and it was and I'm just assuming and maybe one day I'll ask her if I talk to her about it but I I think McCoy's her favorite character. <laughs> that could be yeah it's interesting to mm -hmm. think of it that way and mccoy you know basically has a huge part maybe the largest part in you know saving vulcan from seceding from the federation but also like if you think about the title spock's world spock's really of two worlds of vulcan and earth so i mean it's interesting for that for that title you know to kind of convey to a reader who's just looking at the cover like oh it's about vulcan and spock I, i'm gonna buy that but I mean, it's not like it's something that's that's mentioned in there that this is Spock's world. And yeah, I mean, it is like I think you could be right, Bruce. The two main characters may be Vulcan and McCoy in this one. And also, I, I kind of love that interpretation of the title Spock's world. By the end of this book, it really is a story about Vulcan and its relationship with Earth. So mm. that is kind of mm -hmm. about both of Spock's worlds tangentially anyway. Yeah, I love that. That Absolutely. It's true. So um, Justin and I were talking earlier before the show on the other side of the page about there's uh, in chapter two, there's a party planner basically <laughs> called the Enterprise. <laughs> and what a job that is. He just plans parties. <laughs> Harb Tanzer. Yeah. He's <laughs> a fun character. I, I like him and I, I could be wrong, but I think he's shown up in a couple of the comics as well um, that I think maybe Diane Duane had a hand in, in writing. I could be wrong about that, but I seem oh to remember gosh, seeing... Oh my gosh, I have to go look that up now. <laughs> yeah, I seem to remember seeing a picture of him in like comic form somewhere. And I should have looked that up before we started, but he, he does show up in a few different novels. And yeah, definitely an interesting character. That's one of the things with this, with... I, you you can almost call it the Diane Duane verse because there are a few differences that she brings in in her novels with regards to the Enterprise and how it works and the 
characters that are in her books. So, for example, uh, Narat, the Horta, is another crew member that makes frequent appearances in all of Diane Duane's original series books. I want to see that scene with, you know, Narat in the captain's chair when he's like doing command training in this novel. Like, (laughs) I want to see what I want to see what his uniform looks like, too. (laughs) I think I think he's in a couple comics as well. Oh, really? I I think he is, too, because I think I remember him, uh, whatever, running around. I don't know how he gets whatever, but with uh, with a Delta shield on him. Yeah. Yeah. No uniform. There's there's basically like a little vocorder or like voice transmitting things strapped to him with a little Starfleet insignia on it. You know, (laughs) I I looked it up and Harp Tanzer is in the double blind comics. Ah, okay. As well as a bunch of novels. I think a lot of them, maybe all of them written by Diane Duane. So. (laughs) And if you, uh, if you search Narat, N-A-R-A-H-T, Star Trek, uh, you'll get the memory beta entry for him, and it's got a picture of him uh, from a comic in, in that oh, article. Yes. Looking it up now. <laughs> Me too. Look at us. We're jumping at it right now. <laughs> kind of what and you'd he's, expect. He, Rock he's one of the hatchlings, right? Yeah. yeah he's yeah. one of the one of the ones that were uh, hatched shortly after The Devil in the Dark. <laughs> so since we're talking about the Horda crew member, can we talk about the the variety of different like species that we see on the crew because like I've made a note of it like besides the the Horda there's also um this Lieutenant Mashav who's a species called a Sulamid and it's described as a seven foot tall pillar of pink violet tentacles with the waving rosette of stalked eyes on top (laughs) and then there's also like a 12-legged 12-eyed meter tall spider named Castilic I think who has the memories of like a dead physicist of the same species, like some, some like wild stuff. And there's, there's also another, like other varieties of non-humanoid crew members. And the question that I had as I was reading this and I have for you is like, we don't quite see that kind of diversity in, you know, TOS or even the, the TOS movies. I mean, did that take you out of it or did you feel that was, that was odd to have that variety? Well, it didn't take me out of it. Uh, it it kind of reminds me of Titan because mm-hmm. they're supposed to be very diverse in the Titan novels. But I, I think when the motion picture came out, they wanted to be more diverse. And I just felt like it was playing off that. And I think Christopher mm-hmm. L. Bennett has kind of run with that, too, in his post-TMP books. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I loved it. But I just wonder what people think because it's so different from what you see on screen. Because... Mm-hmm. Dillick, or however yeah. you would pronounce her name, uh, The Wounded Sky by Diane Duane really is is her story. And oh. a lot of what she's talking about here refers back to, the, to that story when they're talking about making insane modifications to the warp drive and that sort of thing. So... Um, that's a really good one if you wanted to okay. bump one up on your list. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I like <laughs> actually because I was rereading this, I'm bumping up on my list the the Ruhansu, uh novels, the oh, Romulan novels. So I'm going to read those great, those uh, next. Books, but yeah. but yeah, Nerat has some great parts. Okay, <laughs> a couple of those books too. So I won't spoil oh, that. That's yeah, excellent. so I'm probably going to take a month and try to read read all of them. So. Oh, very cool. But yeah, I mean, like, no, I I loved all the diversity, and that's the kind of thing that I want to see. But but I. I just wondered about that because it's so different. I mean, it's probably the kind of thing that they would have loved to have had on screen if they had, you know, infinite budget to do things right. To have that kind of variety. Mm -hmm. One thing about this storyline in the present day, and I put that in quotes, present day, uh, 
so to bring, mm-hmm. you know, she was out for revenge on Spock, which caused all this succession stuff going on. Yeah. I thought that seemed a bit of a stretch, but I reread that today because I just I had to go back to that. And the second time I read it, I liked it better. But the first time I read it, I just thought, really, all this is because she just wants to get revenge for Spock because. Yeah, you know, like it's interesting. I was going to bring that up in a little bit because that's the one criticism that I've seen of of this novel that does it really make sense that T'Pring would, you know, hold this grudge and want to have revenge after, I, I think by this point, it's been like, I don't know, eight or 10 years since the, what we see in Amok time. Um, you know, and I was, I was thinking about that as I was reading it this time. And I think it makes sense in the context of well, a bit of what we were talking about before. Not all Vulcans are the same or would react to the same, the same way to the same situation. So she seems to be the kind of, you know, person that may have some more trouble kind of mastering those, those emotions and they can come, come out. And I mean, I think that the, the, um, explanation that that's given is that, you know, basically, you know, there were these events that happened before she got to marry Stan, but he died not that long after. So it's kind of like, you know, because I guess she felt because of, of Spock, she wasn't really able to get what, what she wanted, but like, and there are some, some other parts that, that explain it, but I, I was, I was fine with it. I mean, it's, it's probably not my favorite part that the whole motivation is because of this one person really. Yeah. She felt like Spot, Spock had taken things from her mm-hmm. and, and, and she was going to make him suffer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because she, Stan was gone. He died because he felt like she was really kind of still pining after Spock or something. Anyway, yeah. but she, her whole thing was, so in revenge, she found these factions of Vulcans that didn't like the being part of the Federation and of Earth. Yeah. And so she just fed into that because her idea was, you took away from me, Spock, so I'm going to take Earth away from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or Vulcan away from you if he decides to stay in Starfleet, right? Right. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's kind of interesting because I think that's that could be you know, the one part that I might have wanted to be a little different because it would have been interesting because we've seen it in some other, you know, parts of Star Trek and, and novels where there are these kind of rumblings from from Vulcans about, you know, not being happy with humans in the Federation. They're not logical and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, yeah, it could have been interesting if it was just a, a movement, but I guess they... I guess in the novel, Diane Duane needed some kind of, you know, focus to that and why it was happening now instead of, you know, when the Federation was founded or something like that. Mm. It did, I mean, seem kind of convenient that there was this whole conspiracy that was able to be exposed to kind of turn it around in the 11th hour. But at the same time, yeah, that makes sense to explain why it happened so late in the history of the relationship between Vulcan and earth and yeah. the rest of the Federation. But, but it's like, so. it, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, maybe that could have been improved, but, but it's not like it really took away from my enjoyment of, of the novel. It's just, no, oh, no, for sure. it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, Hmm, I wonder if that could have been a little different. No, it's like, Oh, okay. That's how it, they wrap it up. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it makes me wonder if she's more powerful, uh, within society has holds a, higher position within the Vulcan society than maybe I've attributed to her before. And that, that way she was able to do what she did. Could be. I don't know if we really find out much about her 
you know, her family or her background. That's another book I'd like to read. <laughs> so we Springs do find World. out by the end of this book, the, that Spock's family and Sarek's family. And it is just, I, I don't know if this was established earlier or not, but there's kind of a throwaway line almost that, you know, Sarek is now the head of the house of Surak. Yeah. So, well, and that also T'Pau so is Spock's part of that family, house as well, right? Yeah. So that family, Sarek's family and T'Pau, they're descended from the house that Surak belonged to. So I guess, you know, if T'Pring was marrying into a influential member of that family, I guess we could probably surmise she's from a very powerful house as well, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like in... Yeah, and I don't know if that was established in any any novel before, but it is interesting. And I guess it makes sense for kind of the important position that, you know, Sarek has in society and was able to do this thing for the first time, you know, to to have a, a child with with a human. It it, it makes a, a lot of a lot of sense. Um and I did I really like seeing Tapau in this this novel as as well. It was really interesting kind of where she's come to at this point toward toward the end of her life. And you see some of the backstory in one of the Vulcan chapters as well, that she was the one that convinced Sarek to go to Earth and learn more and give reports back and was kind of like in a way had a, it felt like had a long-term plan to link the two planets more together. And it's like at the end of her life, that work was finished. So I, I really liked that part. And it was it was really moving as well when they had, I guess, her funeral procession and like three million Vulcans come out for it. That was that was great, and mm-hmm. I love that Tapau was in uh, was in this novel, and you got more of her story. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I thought it was interesting too that she placed her katra in Amanda. Yes, mm-hmm. but that, if, <laughs> the fr- you know, I, I hadn't even remembered that from the first time I read it, and I was even the second time I was like, oh. My goodness, I've forgotten about that. So, like, Amanda has, yeah, has Tapau's Katra and, like, whoa. But it doesn't seem the same way as, like, Spock had his Katra in McCoy, where McCoy's kind of fighting the, you know, Spock's influence. I I don't feel like, I feel like Tapau actually died, but maybe just, like, an echo of her maybe See, in Amanda, I, but doesn't have an influence. I, I on think, her. I think mm-hmm. it's a little bit different here because for, for McCoy, you know, at that point when he takes Spock's Katra, it's, it's not like he's had much experience with, with, um, you know, Vulcan, I guess if you set aside Spock's mm-hmm. world, but, um, but in like for Amanda, like in this novel, it's established that she learned the Vulcan language. She'd been on Vulcan before she met Sarek and she's been living on Vulcan for quite some time, probably, I don't know, 50 years or something like that by this point. So I think it makes sense that she would more naturally kind of accept that. Not to mention that McCoy didn't even know that it had happened. Like, he <laughs> yeah, just, it was like, you know, he come was here, I got something for you. Time. What? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like he was unconscious at the time. He had no idea what had happened. And Amanda, you know, like you said, she has all this experience and 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 all of that. But she also went into it willingly and and you know knew what was happening too. Yeah, and might have been prepared for that eventuality also. Maybe. I don't know. But I, I don't know. It, it kind of worked. And you could see, like, in the writing how Amanda has, has changed somewhat with having, you know, that knowledge and kind of spirit of T'Pau. It was very interesting. And I actually liked that a lot as kind of a final way to to bind 
Earth and Vulcan together because they explain that, you know, if they were to vote for secession effectively, they would have to exile to Paus Katra, right? Yes. Like, yes. wow, that made a lot of sense that, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and who would have known how this book would have ended that the vote was against secession, so... Vulcan is still part of the Federation. Now, what's interesting is that, like, if you look at the vote, it's something like 35 to 40% that are still against. So, like, what happens with those people that are, you know, disgruntled enough to want to get out of the Federation? It's a fairly sizable chunk. Like, it was four and a half billion people. Yep. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, because they first announced how many voted for it. And it was, yeah, like four and a half billion. It's like, oh, gosh, wait. And then it's. Nine billion, billion against, like wow! Yeah. But that's a <laughs> and lot. They all of, cheered, yeah. yeah. But that's a lot of people that that want to to leave, and what happens with that? You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, ugh, yeah, there's just so many interesting aspects of of this novel. We could go on and on. I'm sure. Yeah, um, we could. We could. So, Justin, do you think you would go on and on about this novel if it was the late '80s and you were on your I don't know, whatever computer. I'm trying to think of a computer. Your Apple IIe. <laughs> I don't know. Well, and, let's and see. And you're in a BBS. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I know we wanted to talk about that because, like, this came out in 1988, and Diane Duane is talking about a, a BBS, which, for those who aren't familiar with it, was a bulletin board system, which was an important way in the early days of people connecting online to kind of, you know, trade messages and, and information. Um, and I don't think a whole lot of people were, were using something like that back then in, in the late eighties. I certainly wasn't aware of it, although I was a, a kid at the time. Um, but like that she puts that in and that there's kind of this like online anonymous interaction on the enterprise I thought was really fascinating. And you know, people are talking about current events and arguing and people are buying and selling stuff. And, you know, they have to have, you know, admins to to moderate the stuff. And I thought it was interesting that the admin or sysop, as, as they call it, has to like have a psych evaluation to be able to handle the stress and anger of like reading all this <laughs> stuff. I mean, like, and you think about that 30 years later, like, yep, you know, online interactions could do that to you. I mean, it was very prescient and probably and I think it was based on her own experience I think she even has like a, a thank you at the beginning of the uh, the novel to some of the sysops or admins at CompuServe, which I didn't even know existed in the late 80s. I thought it was from the <laughs> 90s. But anyway, that was that was fascinating for me to see that kind of online interaction. What did you guys think? I thought it was, too. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm glad you had put that in the notes. And yeah, you're right. She's thanking the, the SF form on CompuServe. I had no idea it was around the late 80s, too, because I didn't get online and all that stuff until 1995. And so to, to see this in 1988, I mean, obviously, yeah, it existed back then, so she can refer to it. But what really got to me was the different online messaging that she was putting in from members of the crew or from Vulcan. And it's like, Oh my gosh, this is the same type of like the way people are like posting messages (laughs) and arguing. sounds like (laughs) what I read on Twitter or Facebook or whatever every day. It's like the same thing. It was like, (laughs) it's so like nothing has changed. If you think online social messaging is too negative at times, this has been going on for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I was wondering if this book had been written in 2018 instead of uh, 1988, would it be like Spacebook or something instead of 
You know, well, like I, yeah. I, I, and then I started thinking like the idea of like an internal enterprise Facebook, like that's a, that's an interesting yeah. idea. That's really yeah. cool. I mean, it's like, it, <laughs> I, I find it fascinating also because, you know, even if you think about like in, in discovery, which is like coming out in 2017 and 2018, there isn't that kind of interaction you see in Spock's world, like in like things that are happening on the ship where people are trading messages and doing stuff, like somehow it's still been difficult to integrate that kind of thing into Star Trek, but it's only natural that you would have that kind of thing, right? And that kind of, mm-hmm. of, of interaction. But like even, you know, when you think about like the next generation, it's almost like people are, are just, you know, every once in a while getting like a video email, right? There's no interaction happening like on the ship, which is weird, right? For, mm-hmm. From our perspective. But I love that she put that in there and was doing it in an early date like that. And that, like, I think it makes you realize, like, it, it must just be human nature for people, how people interact with these things, no matter what decade or how many people are involved, if it feels the same. Because you read that and you're like, okay, you know, the, that's that's people arguing about current events. That's like a Craigslist ad. I mean, like, there's all this interesting <laughs> stuff in there that I we swear her Trump tweet something in one of these chapters about <laughs> fake news or something. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's all anonymous too, right? Which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, you know, trading memes that are, you know, pictures of, of Tapao with impact font wording on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> Make Vulcan great again. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's so true. And then there's that computer. The computer with the that's, personality, Moira, that can, that's right, apparently yeah. the mystery poster posting like Taoist philosophy. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but like, I thought, but that, that's another part that was interesting that there was this seems like sentient computer <laughs> that's on the Enterprise. Like, wow. Yeah. Well, and the and, idea that like a misspoken, you know, telling a computer to do something or, or allocating certain resources to a computer and bam, it can turn sentient. And I mean that. That's Moriarty. See that in <laughs> elementary dear data. Exactly. You know, that's yeah. how create a com- compute or create an opponent, opponent capable of defeating data. Like I, that's what flashed through my yeah. mind. And that. this is like create a computer capable of supporting party planning. Poof, sentient. (laughs) (laughs) And McCoy even convinces her to help him in his research and pulls these records off of Vulcan that are classified. (laughs) Just tap right in and pull them out. Yeah. And and Kirk at the end is like, don't do that again, but we'll get you a raise. And I'm like, this computer gets paid? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was, that was kind of a delightful thing. And actually it reminded me very much of like in what is it in uh, the more recent novels with, with data where he has a ship and you know, it's, it, it has this sentient personality. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Oh yeah. yeah. Mm, right. It reminded me from very the much cold equation from the cold equations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me very much of, of that kind of, of personality. It was delightful. I, I liked reading that a lot. <laughs> yeah. She had a very distinctive voice somehow too, which was a lot of fun to read for sure. Mm-hmm. So, uh, speaking of voice, I think it's time we voice our final thoughts. So, uh, I'll throw it to our guest, Justin. What are your final thoughts on Spock's world? Which I think I already know, but yeah, let's hear I'm, it. I'm sure nobody <laughs> would be surprised based on how I've been talking about it, that I love this novel through and through. And actually, like I've, I think I've said before that this is in my top three, along with A Stitch in Time and the Destiny trilogy. But in rereading this and kind of like looking at the perspective of it as a whole and everything that it's doing, it surpassed those for me. It's my all-time favorite 
above, you know, even those or any of the other 150 novels I've read. I, I love the writing. I love the characters. I love everything we learn about Vulcan. Um, I, I mean, we've talked about it for an hour and a half, and I feel like I could talk about it for a lot longer because they're, again, like the wisdom of Surak, the history of Vulcan, you know, this secession movement, McCoy's speech. I mean, there's so many things that, that are a favorite that like, it felt like every chapter was my favorite chapter. So this is my all-time favorite now. Um, and I will give it 12 out of 10 Vulcan inner eyelids. Wow. <laughs> Because That's I gave a, really a stitch in time thing. 11 out of 10, so this has to be higher. <laughs> <laughs> no, Excellent. really. I mean, I, like, I, I, I wrote a review in some Facebook groups. Like, I can't praise it highly enough because I just love every, every bit of it, every single bit of it. Cool. Dan, do you feel the same way? Yeah, I have to echo a lot of those sentiments. I mean, this is just an incredible novel, and upon rereading it, it's just as good, if not better than the first time I read it. So, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, fitting it in with, with Star Trek canon. There's a lot of ways in which, you know, Star Trek canon has moved on since then, but, you know, this is still just a really relevant, really great novel in a lot of ways. And one, one just thing I wanted to slip in before we completely finish talking about it. I always imagine that, you know, when the when the final vote comes or not the final vote but when the the vote to end the discussions comes uh-huh. in i always imagine that michael burnham was standing in the wings ready to be the next person on stage and they're like oh everyone stop we've reached the threshold and she's like oh man i wanted to talk about my experiences but oh well <laughs> and then she walks behind stage and then her half brother walks up and she's like he's like are you okay and she's like yeah i'm okay I just have a lot of pain right now. And he's like, you know, you, you need your pain. Let me take your pain away from you. Oh, it's Cyborg. No. Um. Oh my goodness. Oh boy. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it resolves all the continuity issues yeah, in one no, fell swoop. No, no problem. It does. So what would it be? Admiral Burnham at that point? I, I would like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't rate this one highly enough. I would have to give it, man, I'd ha- maybe five found diamonds in the Vulcan system that we have to argue over what we're going to do with because it's just, it's so great. I love it. You can retire now. All those diamonds. Awesome. No, no, no. The diamonds stay with the podcast. You can't retire. Be careful of the thoughts that might get sent. Oh, uh, we have to still do the podcast even though we're rich now. Darn. Oh, darn. You do that because you Talk love doing Star it no matter how much, how much money you have, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Totally. Actually, if we could do that, we'd probably do this podcast. No, we couldn't read that. I was going to say we'd do this podcast every Every day, day. but we can't read (laughs) that many books in a a week or whatever. Nope. No. But I I really enjoyed this book, too. There isn't much more I can add to it that you guys haven't said already. Uh, I I probably would say I like this book more now than I did the first time. And it wasn't that I didn't have this high on my list before. But because I've read so many Star Trek novels since and coming back to this just shows how good this is. I mean, because there's so many Star Trek books that I think are just fabulous. And this to be that high up my list really says a lot. So um, I will give this book 
12 out of 12 legged, 12 eyed meter tall spiders. All right. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> now, by the way, does that, does that spider Castellic appear in any comics? That would be interesting. I don't recall the spider. Not that I recall, but I could to be totally wrong. Because that would that. look total, really interesting. <laughs> That would. It might be. We'll have to check that out. But And also, I just want to throw out, uh, I looked, I was just curious if, because there were so many books back then that were done as audio books on cassette and then CDs. And I did not find Spock's World on Audible, but it looks like there was one done read by Leonard Nimoy and uh, George Takei. Hmm. It was, they both read it, and it's available as used CDs or cassettes if you can find them online. And it looks like on the CDs there's three of them, so it's about three hours long. So oh, interesting. Also, quick uh, side note here, Castillic is actually on the cover of uh, The Wounded Sky. I was seeing that, yeah, in the background. Oh, I am too. I was searching <laughs> while I was talking. Very interesting. It looks <laughs> kind of like a jellyfish. It does. <laughs> Fascinating. So well, weird. I've definitely got to read that that one as well. Man, so many Diane Duane books I need to read. I've only read two of them so far, but that'll change soon. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, they, yes. they really are worth it. They are. So, Justin, when you're not reading Diane Duane books, where can people find you online? Well, you can find me elsewhere on the network uh, co-hosting Earl Grey. That's our dedicated Next Generation podcast with Amy Nelson and Richard Marquez. We have a great time uh, talking about the Next Generation each week. Uh, you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. And as well, um, I want to mention that I'm part of a couple of Facebook uh, Star Trek books and comics groups, uh, the Star Trek Books Community Group, the Star Trek Books Discussion Group, and literally Star Trek. So you'll often see me there uh, posting reviews, uh, like of Spock's World that I did today, and you know interacting there. So I love to talk about Star Trek books there as well. Oh, and... Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And I tweet a lot about uh, Star Trek novels. And soon I will be tweeting out my season five rewatch of The Next Generation. So, wow. Talk about an episode heaping praise on a Star Trek novel. I think uh, this is the first time in a while that I remember everyone giving a perfect score and in... Justin's case, a better than perfect score to a novel. Spock's World, I think, definitely floats to the top as a real winner. It really does. I think if anybody were to come to me and say, well, I don't know. Now that I think about it, I was going to say, if anybody came to me and said, oh, I've never read a Star Trek book, should I re what should I read? This would be, if someone came to me and they were like a hardcore Trekkie that loves the original series or loves Vulcans or whatever, I would definitely recommend this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's not for like the more casual fan that wants something maybe a little different, but I think for hardcore Trekkies, this is the thing to go with. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that that's definitely, like I said, this is one that I recommend if you, if you had to read one Star Trek novel, this should be it, I think. So yeah, I would definitely agree with you on that one. Well, it's been fun talking about one of the best Star Trek novels that we've read, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! They could go on vision quests together. <laughs> yes! So instead of seeing Janeway and Chakotay doing that, it would be Chakotay and Seska. 
Can two people share a vision quest? Does this even make sense? Uh, I think so. How does it happen without telepathy or without... You need the Akuna. You know, that thing that Chakotay puts his hand on and then it says Akuchimoya? It's the Akuna. So as long as you're both touching the Akuna, you can be in the same vision. Do you know that back in ancient Earth they had an Akuna too? It was in Africa. They called it the Akuna Matata. I knew you were going to go there because (laughs) I was about to go there. (laughs) Akuna Matata. What a wonderful gadget. The 602 Club. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think it's definitely one of the big, I would say, two central themes, in my opinion, of the film. And like you said, I think that it's those are archetypes, right? It's the story of it's the story of, of life. It's the story of growing up. Um, and those are very well. It, it's very well, very clearly delineated in the film. The Ready Room. When I wrote the companion book. I knew of basically this moment in time, but I had no idea that this specific memo had been written, much less that it still existed. And yes, so I was just gobsmacked, as Marina would say. Earl Grey. Just within the episode, the arc of, of the nanites going from like this these annoying beings that you want to sterilize and get rid of to ones where you can come to an understanding for their point of view through data at the end and then they can found their civilization is, is amazing and I just love that moment when that understanding happens because I love when conflicts like that are resolved through understanding and in a nonviolent way so that's that's my moment and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond and you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, that means you're probably finding them on iTunes. And while you're doing that, be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a star rating and a written review and share your thoughts on the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of our shows from Trek FM on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website, and you can grab the RSS link there as well. If you'd like to help us keep our shows coming to you each week, the logical thing to do is become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more logical things available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. And it takes a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate your support that you can give us. And join the team by going to patreon.com slash trekfm. And hello, we have feedback. (laughs) From iTunes. (laughs) On iTunes, we have a review from Lost Trekkie 1. And this was posted on February 11th, 2018. And the title of it is called Great Podcast. And it's got five stars. Oh, wait, this must be the wrong one. Oh, no, wait, no, it's the right one. We are a great podcast, Dan. Look at that. And <laughs> Who'd have thunk? <laughs> Who would have thunk? And it says, I've been reading Star Trek books since I was a little kid, 
and loved them, but never really had anyone to talk about them with, even with my closest Trekkie friends. And honestly, some of my favorite Trek stories are from the book verse. So this podcast is an absolute joy to finally have deep and engaging discussions on a sadly underappreciated side of the Trek world. The hosts are fun, engaging, and give well-thought-out analysis of the books. Even episodes about books I hadn't read were interesting, and they clearly warn about spoilers if that bothers you. If you love the Trek books or just want to hear more about stories you may not have heard from the wonderful world of Star Trek, this podcast is well worth your while. Well, we thank you Lost Trekkie won. Yeah. And I'm with you. I never had anybody to talk about the books with either for the longest time. That's exactly how I found the podcast too. When I first started as just a listener was, you know, nobody was there. There was nobody I could talk to about Star Trek books. So, you know, if we could bring that conversation to you uh, each week or almost every week, we're really happy to do that and happy to share that with you. So thank you so much. Those really kind words. Well, if you want to hear anybody else's thoughts on today's show, Dan, where can they go? Well, there are many ways for them to do that. It's not limited to just a BBS system on the enterprise computer. The best place you can join in the larger conversation is in the Babel conference, which is our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to me and Bruce. And you can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And you can find us on the Goodreads group on goodreads.com. Just go to Goodreads and you can find our bookshelf that shows you what we've read, what we are currently reading, and what we are going to read in the future so you know what books to read before the shows come out so you can keep up with us so just go on goodreads and search for literary treks and click join group and so we'd like to thank norman c lau ken tripp greg rosier brandon shamotella justin oza who was just on and jeffrey harlan for their support of the trek fm network and being associate producers for literary treks as well so dan when you're not in a tribe on Vulcan searching for water and about to take over some other tribe, where can people find you? Well, I'd probably be trying to develop those mental powers. Some of those sounded really cool, but when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K E R T R A T S. I'm also on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Kurtrats productions. Now that discovery is done, I'm doing a lot more Star Trek book reviews And those videos don't seem to get a lot of views. So I don't know if any of the Star Trek readers listening to this want to see some video reviews of Star Trek books, go check that out. You can also find me on facebook.com slash Kurtrats Productions and of course in the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek. And Bruce, when you're not standing in front of a group of assembled Vulcans giving a TED talk about why Vulcans should stay in the Federation, where can we find you? Should Vulcans separate from the Federation? Hell no! That's what McCoy says. Hell no. Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline then Rex. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. You can go to StarWarsReport.com or find it anywhere in your podcast 
apps or wherever you listen to podcasts and that sort of thing. And, you know, when Discovery was on, I was doing Live from the Edge, the sub show to the Edge with uh, Brandy Jackalus or Jackola. I was corrected on that, but she doesn't care if it's Jackala or Jacola. That's what her and Dave said. So I, I don't know. I'll go with Jacola at this point. So, uh, but those will start up again, possibly when we get to season two. I don't know. We might restructure things. I don't know what we're going to do. But anyway, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.